This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. In workshop, you get to tell the story out loud and then see whether people instantly engage with it. Recently in the workshop that I lead with students, we were talking about used magazine stores and how they refuse to buy people's collections of National Geographic or Playboy because no one ever throws them away, so there is no market for them. And someone else in the group said, I wonder if that is how the big box of porn in the woods happens. And everyone in that group, 25 people, ages 19 to 60, instantly had this shocked look because they had all, as children, found the big box of porn in the woods. And they all thought it was just them. And they had never talked about finding the big box of porn in the woods. And suddenly, someone had said the thing no one had ever acknowledged. And they were all desperate to tell their story. And the room was filled with a hundred different versions of the big box of porn in the woods. It was kind of glorious, and that's what you look for in a story. And that's how Workshop kind of allows you to test material to see if people really engage with it in that completely visceral way. And that's what you're hoping for. And it's one of the reasons why I like this book so much is that there's so many things that I never really put words to, but you include this in a book about writing. And I think it is very important. Oh my gosh, this is maybe my favorite podcast ever. I kind of geeked out all over this. Very excited to share with you this episode with Chuck Palahniuk, who's, among many other things, he's the author of the novel Fight Club, which became one of my favorite movies, Fight Club. And he just wrote a new book about how to write better called Consider This. It's the best book on writing I've ever read. It's already changed the way I'm thinking about writing and how I'm writing. And part of being creative and having the energy to be creative is being and feeling healthy. If you're sick in bed, you cannot be creative. So I take a very specific certain superfood supplement every single morning. If you're a longtime listener to the show, you know what I take. I love taking athletic greens. It's been a part of my morning routine for about three years now. So every morning I take athletic greens. I read for two hours. I write for three hours. And only then do I begin kind of the business aspects of my day. But I want to be supercharged by Athletic Greens when I start writing, and that's how I organize my morning. So now, go ahead and picture your morning, whatever it looks like, and now imagine feeling healthier, having all the nutrients you need, and knowing you're actually taking care of yourself. It is a good feeling, trust me. And really, when it comes to eating the right foods and getting all the nutrients I need, I do my best, but I know my diet is not perfect, so that's why I really like Athletic Greens because just one scoop of it covers all the bases, which sounds crazy, but it's true. Athletic Greens is much more than just another greens product. By the way, if it was just another greens product, I would hate it. There's no way I would do it. Athletic Greens tastes good. It's the most complete whole food supplement available. It has 75 ingredients working together to help with 11 different areas of health. That's why I've truly outsourced my health and nutrition to Athletic Greens. So if you're listening to this and thinking about all the things you could accomplish or how good it would feel to be supported by all the health benefits that Athletic Greens has to offer, take action now. Give yourself a daily routine with Athletic Greens. It really will be the single best thing you can do for your health and success this year. And right now, 
Athletic Greens has a special offer for listeners of the James Altucher Show. I am so happy that we worked this deal out with them. You're going to get 20 free travel packs with a value of $79 with your very first purchase. Just go to athleticgreens.com slash James and claim your special offer today. This is available in the U.S., Canada, U.K., and EU. That's athleticgreens.com slash James. Don't miss this. I don't know if you've ever failed, but it's it's definitely an unpleasant. I don't know if that's what you're referring to. Yeah. <laughs> I think friends are overrated. Hmm? Friends are overrated. All right, are you rolling? Uh, by the way, what's the best way to pronounce your last name? Because I've pronounced it 17 different ways this past week. We say Polonic. Polonic? Polonic. So Chuck Polonic, author of Fight Club, 10, 11, 12 other novels, essays, love Stranger Than Fiction, by the way, your book of essays, author of a lot of short stories. I'm pretty sure I've read all of them. Fight Club, of course, became movie. Fight Club 2, which I have in one of these rooms, is a graphic novel. Um, and I read, and I didn't know how actively involved you were in that, but I read in this book, your new book, Consider This, this moments in my writing life after which everything was different. The best book on writing I have ever read, and I've read a ton of them, and this is so detailed, plus interwoven with your stories, beginning writing and with each novel and short stories and everything. And there's so many interesting things that I learned from. I want to, I think this, this podcast might have more pauses because I'm going to just keep going to pages I fold over, folded over and try to remember why I folded them over and then ask you about them. But you just said something that I think about a lot, which is that friends are overrated. And I wonder about this. Like, how many friends do you think someone should have? Mm, four. Four? Four. What if they move? <laughs> uh, you know, friends aren't based on proximity. The friends are based on, on a mutual shared concern for one, one another or a shared passion. It reminds me of an essay Raymond Carver once wrote where it's basically, and it starts off with a photo of, so Raymond Carver is a short story writer. You refer to him constantly in the book. Raymond Carver is has a photo of him, Tobias Wolf, and one other, uh, I think, uh, I think Mississippi-based writer. I forget now. Barry Hanna? No. I don't know. It was him, Tobias Wolf, and and he was like nervous about becoming, and they all kind of expressed nervousness in this essay about being friends with each other because mm -hmm because of what you just said, that they were afraid that then it would be a commitment of time and how are they going to see each other if ever again? And, you know, there wasn't the internet then for email and phone calls were expensive. Uh, and so I've even asked my therapist this, like what's the right amount of friends to have? Because there's also all this research, which I don't know whether to pay attention to or not, but it says you're healthier, you live longer, or you're happier when you have friends. And so I'm always curious, like, because I feel I work too much, well, how much time should I devote to making a friend? You know, and there's a big chasm between friends and acquaintances, friends and, and deep acquaintances, and, and they, they shouldn't be confused. You can have a lot of acquaintances, a lot of connection, a lot of network, but uh, I don't think that translates necessarily to a lot of friends. Yeah, and like, you know, I noticed too, and we're going to get to your book, but this fascinates me. I always see people vacationing with coworkers or with business partners, and that strikes me as profoundly stupid. 
because you see them all the time anyway. Like what else do you want to do with them? Like you're going to go to the beach and be kind of naked and hang out with them all the time. And then go, is that going to improve your business deals with them? Or maybe think you're friends with them. You're not really friends with them. So what's, I don't know. This seems to be a common theme in, in our culture as well. Well, you know, think about Starbucks because its business model was to be the third place. And the third place used to be church, used to be religion. And so you have family, you had the workplace, and you had your community of faith. And people really don't have that. And so sometimes the third place is the gym. And sometimes the third place is your passion. It's For me, it's the writer's workshop, yeah. uh, who are friends that I've had since 1990. And we meet typically once a week. And we are what I would call friends because our shared passion and our shared investment in each other keeps us together for decades. Uh, so a lot of people don't have that third place. Or Starbucks has tried to position itself as the third place. And it doesn't really work that way. No, because I think what happened is Starbucks did become a third place but a third place for you to just sit and dive into your computer and tune out everyone else. Right. And there's no coworkers or family or, or friends right. to bother you. It's not based on, because the third place is kind of, it has to be based on the, the intangible passion, whether it's religion or whether it's kind of physical fitness, uh, which is a kind of asceticism, or whether it is uh, a writing passion or an art passion. You know, the third place, whether it's a class, it's based on something that's not work and it is not home. It's not family. So I'm starting to sound like Lewis Hyde. Well, no, but it's, it's, this is actually, it occurred to me, this does segue into consider this, but I'm going to explore it a little further, which is that, um, I think this notion, I think you're right. There's a third place that maybe is kind of this shared interests and you're lucky that you've had one with a bunch of people since 1990. And then I'm wondering, you know, you said it doesn't have to be physically present, but I wonder how important that actually is. The Like you're physically present with your workshop friends. No, think about it. It used to be that people would go to their religious community once a week. And in doing so, they would make a confession of sorts. They would reveal their worst selves. They would present everything that they had done wrong during the week, and they would be given community back and forgiven mm. for their transgressions. So once a week, you got a clean slate. And then more and more religious communities became kind of a theater for looking good, for just kind of pre presenting status, you know, presenting your best, cleanest, nicely dressed self. And they weren't that place about being grotty. So more and more, the third place, you know what it is? You know what it is. Hi, I'm Chuck, uh, and I'm an alcoholic. It's that 12-step place where people go and they present their absolute worst selves. I did this this week. I did this this week. And regardless of what Thomas Wolfe says, that is the place where they have to take you back. Family yeah. doesn't take you back anymore. But those 12-step basement grotty places, like the support groups in Fight Club, they have to take you back. And there's something glorious about that. Well, you you just segued before I had the chance to, but in Consider This, you write about this in two different places in the book. Um, you know, and again, 
this book I feel is a combination of not only your story interweaving through, but you start off with more of kind of the details of language and how language can be thought of and played with in any writing, but really, uh, uh, you know, really any writing, but you're talking primarily about fiction, but it could be any writing. And later on, I feel you talk more about the essences of, of plot and how you drive the reader forward. And so this occurs in both sections, but the notion, and I think you do this very well in your writing and you bring up fight club as an example, the notion of building a community in a work of fiction, as well as rules for that community. And we have kind of this, this primal way in which we, we, we want those rules and that community and a special community defined by special rules, you know, so fight club, you know, the first rule of, you know, I, the fa- I'm not even going to repeat cause it's a cliche to repeat it, but the, the rules and, uh, and you do that throughout your novels is that you define almost the rules of the main character and then people either join or not, or are repulsed in many cases by these rules and that, that form the linkage and even the intimacy between the characters and, and others. And I found that to be, I've never thought of that out loud when I've, when I've read books or, or written books, but that, that is really strong. That is entirely Victor Turner, the British cultural anthropologist who identified what he called liminal and limnoid uh, events. Oh my God, hold on a second. I got to just take notes. Fuck the podcast. I'm just taking uh, notes. <laughs> so <laughs> liminal things, liminal events are, are typically things that take place in the, in the, the transitions between things. Halloween is a, a liminal event. It takes place between summer and winter. The honeymoon is a liminal event. It takes place between being single and being married. You must leave your community typically for three days. And after three days, culturally, you come back. And throughout all religions, there are these moments like R- three in Orthodox days. Judaism or Hasidic yeah. Judaism, a woman menstruating, there's a before and after in how the husband treats her. I'm not Orthodox or anything like that. I just know. But, you know, I think it's terrific when you look at these and the rituals for liminal things. But... Victor Turner also identified what he called limnoid things, limnoid events, which have the nature of liminal events, which are characterized by uh, communitas, which is kind of a leveling of the social hierarchy. Everyone is equal. And it's also uh, limnoid and liminal events are also uh, characterized by a uh, inversion of the power hierarchy. On Halloween, little children who have no power get to dress up as outsider beings. They dress up as the dead. They dress up as the wrong gender. They dress up as animals. And they go out and they, they demand tribute from adults who are the people who typically have power. Mm. Christmas caroling used to be about poor people going to your house and singing songs. And if you did not give them food or gold, they would break your windows. Christmas caroling used to be a frightening thing. Anyway, communitas, reversal of the power hierarchy, and there's something else. Anyway, limnoid events have those characteristics, but they're not typically held at the juncture between things. A limnoid event is Burning Man, where people just decide we're going to throw a big party, which has the characteristics of communitas, where everyone is equal. 
So, so, so that's fascinating. So again, taking your most famous book, uh, Fight Club, uh, that's obviously uh, you're you're creating this internal made up hierarchy which reverses the power structure. That's a lot of the themes of the book. But if you think about it, you know, primates or humans are different from other primates in that, let's say with a, a chimpanzee tribe, the only source of happiness really is whether you move up or down that one hierarchy. You can't escape the 30 people, the 30 other chimpanzees in your tribe that's, you know, you either get cortisol when you move down, which makes you unhappy, or you get, I don't know, oxytocin when you move up the hierarchy, it makes you happy and, uh, you can't get away from it. But with humans, I feel, and I've, I've thought about this a lot, you can diversify hierarchies. So let's say you have a bad day at business, which is very hierarchical from the assistant to the assistant, to the assistant, all the way up to the VP and the president, and the CEO, that's very hierarchical. Let's say you have a bad day at business. Well, you can go off to the golf course where there's another hierarchy and maybe mm -hmm. you could have a good game of golf and find happiness again. So there's, you could diversify the hierarchies you join and what you're saying with fiction is you can kind of escape into this other world where a hierarchy is also being defined that you could kind of relate to or join. Well, and according to Turner, with limnoid events, you're basically kind of experimenting with a social model allowing people to participate in the social model for a very brief period, uh, completely voluntarily. And then you see whether or not people adopt it and perpetuate it. The Santa rampage, you know, where hundreds of people would get together all dressed as Santa, all using the name Santa, and they would kind of rampage and party through, a, through, through an urban area. That has since been completely taken on by the culture. And now there are thousands of Santa rampages. Um, things that used to be very edgy that the cacophony society was doing like burning man have been co-opted by Nike. And that's exactly what should happen. That is what Victor Turner says happens to a, a successful limnoid event. Well, take, take like a uh, star Wars. Okay. The Jediism is a religion, an official religion in the UK and many people all over the world would actually subscribe to it because they, yeah. they escaped into it. It felt like you said, it's a safe way to test whether some fictional group feels good inside. It felt good enough to enough people that people regularly say, oh, I'm going to use the force here and, uh, or whatever. And if it serves people, people will perpetuate it. And that's what you're hoping for. And, and it's interesting that you include this essentially in a, in a, in a writing advice book. I've never seen it. It's, it's one of the reasons why I like this book so much is that there's so many things that... I never really put words to, but you include this advice in a writing, a book about writing. And I think it is very important. Like, you know, you think, um, I mean, you think of like the Sopranos as an example on TV, you know, is this weird New Jersey mafia subculture that we're allowed to safely play. Oh, I'm going to be a mafia guy while I watch, you know, you very in this book too. Throughout this book, you kind of connect biology with words. So, like, just to quickly make reference to another section, instead of using to be verbs, use action verbs because the, it'll fire the part of the brain as if the brain is actually doing that action. And so, similarly here, if you just if there's a, a a limnoid that or or some group plus rules that I'm reading about, maybe for that moment. I'm actually feeling like I'm a member of it and it's a way to safely see if, do I like being a member of this or do I not want to be a member of this? And that, and that, 
that that drawing the reader in like that almost biologically and, and neurologically, I guess, does lead to strong writing. Well, and also th that's one great argument for the workshop is that in workshop you get to tell the story out loud and then see whether people instantly engage with it. Because it's not the stories that you tell that shut everyone down in complete awe. Everyone is so overwhelmed by the end of the story that it's silence. It's the stories that you tell where everyone can relate. Recently in, in the workshops that I lead with, with students, we were talking about used magazine stores and how they refuse to buy people's collections of National Geographic or Playboy because no one ever throws them away, so there is no market for them. And someone else in the group said, I wonder if that is how the big box of porn in the woods happens. And everyone in that group, 25 people, ages 19 to 60, instantly had this shocked look because they had all, as children, found the big box of porn in the woods, and they all thought it was just them. And they had never talked about finding the big box of porn in the woods. And suddenly, someone had said the thing no one had ever acknowledged. And they were all desperate to tell their story. And the room was filled with a hundred different versions of the big box of porn in the woods. It was kind of glorious. And that's what you look for in a story. And that's how Workshop kind of allows you to test material to see if people really engage with it in that completely visceral way. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder if I wonder how you think um, fiction is affected by the fact that there's now so much exposed reality on, let's say, social media. So, for instance, any group you could think of, probably even including that one, there's some Facebook group or some group on some social media site that is that that's the, the equivalent of a, a limnoid. So you don't have to no longer you no longer have to actually read it in fiction, you could kind of experience many of these things in the real world because now there's so many reality stories out there. I wonder if that affects people's interest in fiction. I think people still have to be in the presence of other people for that important thing to happen. The, the, the whole paradigm in religion that it takes two or more people to be present for God to be present, that there has to be this kind of limbic chemistry happening. People have to be present it's something I write about in the next book, the horror novel, in that now that people have become, audiences have become so automatized with everyone consuming media at home, they're watching movies and they're thinking, why aren't movies as funny or as scary as they used to be? And it's because we're watching them alone. We're not watching them in this kind of soup of other people's limnic emotions. You don't think it's because there might be some chance that we see almost anything we see now in a horror movie. Now, of course, there's no monsters in real life, but those are just, you know, metaphors for the monsters in real life, but, and which we do now see more than ever on social media. You know, you could just, you could YouTube almost anything and see it instead of seeing a horror movie. And I wonder if that takes the energy out of a horror movie a little bit. I think the, the larger factor, you know, there, there's always the, the failure to reinvent whatever the, the, the unspoken horror is at the moment. But I think the larger factor is the fact that we're seeing, we're consuming these things alone. And that, you know, studies show that that our body chemistry is different when we're being frightened with other people. And when studios are going to screen a new movie, 
they will run a, a contest so that they fill the theater with 19-year-olds who've all won tickets over the internet or the radio. And the six critics who are sitting in there will react more positively because they're surrounded by 800 kids who are euphoric about having won tickets for this thing. So they're going to laugh at everything or they're going to scream at everything. And that's going to affect how the critics review the movie. So, so when you're writing fiction, though, and someone's reading it, they're consuming your fiction by themselves. So you're giving them this, this, you know, artificial, not artificial, but you're giving them this group with rules, you know, classic example, fight club, and, uh, they're experiencing them that as an individual, what's happening there biologically, they're, they're by themselves. Mm -hmm. They're not with two people reading your book. What, what, what's happening there? You know, because they are alone, uh, you have complete freedom to show them anything. You know, movies have to make things literal enough to film them. But that means uh, they're also a very passive, easy thing to consume. But that means movies are incredibly limited in where they can go. Because that movie could be shown accidentally to a child. Or that movie has to be shown to an enormous audience to make its profit. But a book has such low production costs and it's consumed by one person who makes all the effort to consume it. So a book can do anything. And so book, it should, I think, because of its nature of consumption, it should be able to go to very extreme places. And it should depict people together because it's being consumed by someone alone. And I lost the third thing already. There you are. So, so well, so, and it's funny because now that I think about it, there's so many books with this idea, like just take Amy Tan's The Joy Luck Club mm -hmm. or... Divine Secrets of the Yaya -Ya Sisterhood or How to Make an American Quilt or Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. There are so many narratives about how women can come together and the rules in which they conduct themselves together so that they can share their lives and they can, so they can really counsel each other about their experience. Even, even a book like Old Man in the Sea, you get this sense that the old man has this code that he's living by that maybe has lasted for thousands of years among fishermen. And we all sort of feel like we want to live by this code as well. Like this is like a right way to live. And that feels a similar, like a similar way. You know, and I can't speak, I don't typically read books that have a sort of single alone solitary narrative uh, character. Um, I'm thinking of books like uh, uh, Generation X by Doug Copeland. Yeah. Which oh, is a which group of great. friends. Yeah. Defined the, a, it defined the whole generation. Right. And B, we all read it in 1992 or 93. And we were like, that's me. And we all talked to our friends about it. It, it did define the generation. And it's so funny how right now the millennials or Generation Y or Generation Z, they are dealing with exactly the same things that were dealt with in Generation X. Student loan, the inability to buy property, uh, diminishing wages, everything that, that Doug complained about in that book is exactly what people are complaining about now. And even the feeling and someone saying to you, you're not going to do as well in life as your parents. Right. Because that was the big theme in Generation, in the book Generation X, that your parents lived a good life. It's not going to happen to you. And the exact same thing are being, are being felt by our kids today, the Gen Zs today. Um, one of the, he coined so many terms and one of them was uh, the Jack and Jill party. Do you remember that term? I don't remember. It referred to the fact that 
uh, you had to invite both your male friends and your female friends to a wedding shower in order to get the quality Eisenhower era gifts that you would have gotten in a previous generation. To get consumer goods of greater value, you had to invite both genders. So wedding showers became Jack and Jill parties. So it was all about sort of trying to keep up with your parents' standard of living. You know, again, this reminds me of also uh, Kurt Vonnegut's Cat's Cradle, where he creates a set of words even to um, describe the, the, you know, I don't have to say Bakuman's uh, religion mm. um, of, of how people are really relating. And, and so suddenly you, you want to start, your mind starts thinking you want to start using those words and you start noticing the same things in your own life. So it's, it's interesting. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to get to some of the things you say about text um, and, and, and the use of words, but, you know, and then we'll get into kind of more of these issues of plot and, and, and devices. But you have this one chapter I thought fascinating called textures. And you basically say things are descriptions, instructions, or exclamations. And it's good to kind of mix these. And I never even thought of it that way. I do think, you know, over my own 30 years of nonfiction writing that I've, I've used a lot of this device instinctively, but actually putting it to words, it makes a huge sense. And I never thought of it this way, but if everything is just description, it's boring. Nothing could be just exclamation. And, you know, if it's just instruction, it doesn't make any sense either. The kind of mixture of the three sort of helps a narrator create a, a story, create a plot. You know, think of it like uh, uh, camera shots. You know, you've got the distant shot coverage, you've got the medium shot, you've got the close-up. And so you're kind of juggling the, your depth of perception by, you know, the way in which you tell it, whether it's description or imperative or onomatopoeia. Yeah, and it, it reminds, then it's, there's another thing that you, um, that you say later on too, which is mix first, second, and third person, which I never thought of. And uh, I remember I have this book somewhere called Points of View, and it's short stories where each short story though, okay, this short story is in the second person, this short story is in the first person, this is third person omniscient. And, um, you know, second person is always an interesting way to describe the difference between persons because it's an unusual one. It's using the you, mm -hmm. uh, but you know, Bright Lights, Big City did it. Right. Mark Richard did it in his um, kind of memoir-esque uh, book. Uh, and, and, but it's interesting. I never thought about combining all three. You know, and it's how people tell the best stories. When you listen to really good out loud storytellers, they, uh, they will you know, sort of vary their pace, vary their sort of closeness to the subject by changing the point of view. Yeah, because you could imagine like a story like, Let's say I'm telling you a story and I'm saying, imagine you just walk into a bank and there's the bank robber. I didn't know what to do, but everybody, the whole bank was just on the ground. And then I just use second, first, and third. And it does make, it brings you in right away. Yeah. And then it's my experience. So you want to find out what happened to me next. And then I'm, and then, I, and then I'm, you know, then you're seeing what everybody's doing in the bank, maybe even me. Well, and I think more importantly than, you know, investment in the eye, the eye establishes uh, the context for the story, who's telling it, so that you know it's not a made-up story because someone's actually taking responsibility for having been there and witnessed it, and someone is being accountable for the telling of the story. It's not just a, you know, third-person, omniscient sort of distant story. 
Yeah. So, and, and you know, another uh, thing you say about the eye, you say submerge the eye. So, and this one's interesting because I'm not, because I think this one's a, a subtle thing. If someone's telling a story in the first person, they think they're telling a story about themselves, but there's a danger to go overboard and maybe even have a little ego in it, which people can sense when they're reading. And I think, so maybe you want to describe submerging the eye, but my, my impression is you, 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 you know, and you use a great example is the great Gatsby, Nick, it's not, it's a sort of about Gatsby and you get Nick's, Nick almost seems like a bland sort of person because he's submerging the eye. I, I can think of examples though, where the, somebody is very much an eye in a book, but, but it works really well when you're either self-deprecating or uh, vulnerable in some way, or you, you're, you, you give some other person status over you in the story. You know, and that's what works so nice about apostolic fiction. Uh, what, how, what do you call it? Apostolic fiction. It's it, kind of an apostle talking about a, uh, a greater character. This is my hero. Uh, it, it makes us like the narrator because the narrator is liking someone. We like people mm. who like people. Uh, that's an admirable thing. Yeah, I guess like think about like Herman Hesse's Siddhartha as a classic example where it's not about, or it's not from the point of view of Siddhartha, it's just his friend who looks up to him. So it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, but yeah, I like this idea of mixing the textures, mixing the persons, uh, you know, and sort of changing what I think are the normal rules of, of how people think about writing. You know, and that's another kind of wonderful trick is if you can write in the third person, but make it incredibly voicey third person. So there's, there's always this inference that a real person is telling the story. It's not the voice of God. It's not some stream of consciousness, perfect language person that, that you make the same mistakes consistently and you give the third person uh, a voiciness. And that's a fascinating, wonderful thing to do. Yeah, like so a movie example is The, the Road Warrior. It's like from the point of view of this little boy looking up to Max and, uh, uh, you know, you only lay at the end realize, oh, that was that character, even though the whole thing was in the third person. Kind of like Shane. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting. All right. I'm going to just keep going to the places where I've, I've, uh, folds and then I got to figure out what I, why I folded it. Um, oh yeah. I was curious about this, how to pass time because it seems like sometimes authors, all, all great authors, sometimes speed up the pace of a story and sometimes very deliberately slow it down in various ways. Like maybe they stop for a second to describe the geography. And of course the geography will in some way, if they're subtle enough, be a metaphor for what's happening in the story. But no matter what, it does slow the pacing of then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And by the way, a fog came over the mountains and then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. So it's, it's interesting. Like maybe, how do you know how to pace the time? You know, and part of it comes from uh, testing the story, reading it out loud, uh, and seeing where it wears people out, where people need a rest. Uh, and when you tell it out loud, you can put those pauses in it so people are hanging on that silence. Do you remember Paul Harvey? Yeah. Do you remember Dr. Laura Schlesinger? Yeah. They both had the same way of, of talk and break at weird moments. And that strange breaking quality that they had of pausing in the wrong places made you listen more closely. They both did it exactly the same. And so telling a story out loud, you can do that. 
but on the page you have to use other devices for pacing the delivery. That's why I'm such a, I'm a complete fanatic about attribution and dialogue. Because if you don't put attribution or gesture into the dialogue and pace it the way an actor would pace it, then your reader is just going to plow through that dialogue and it won't matter how beautifully crafted you did it. It's going to be kind of wasted. Okay, I want you to do this. Google Fight Club, as in Fight Club, the movie. The first thing you find is the movie description, and it says this. It says, a depressed man, played by Edward Norton, suffering from insomnia, meets a strange soap salesman. I feel like I've personally identified with that character. That's like, I'm kind of like both sides of that, a depressed man with insomnia, and I've been a strange soap salesman. Someone who's overworked, sluggish, stressed all the time, depressed, not getting enough sleep. That was like 10, 10 to 15 years of my life. It's the complete opposite, though, of how I want to feel. I want to feel creative. I want to feel healthy, energized. I want to feel happy with my relationships. I want to feel focused. So I'm going to tell you what I do personally to feel this. First off, I always try to eat well, sleep well, move well. And I try to have good relationships in my life. I try to be creative every day. But also, very important, I do drink athletic greens. And I'm so happy that this favorite resource of mine is a sponsor of this podcast. If you've been a listener of the podcast, then you already know that I love Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens is the quickest, easiest, and most complete superfood supplement out there. It's designed to support your body's nutrition needs across five critical areas of health, energy, immunity, gut health, hormonal support, and healthy aging. These are all important topics in my life, and you've heard me talk about them tons of times on this podcast. Athletic Greens spent 10 years with top nutritionists, naturopaths, and doctors to create a comprehensive formula. The formula is designed to help you adapt as your daily needs change due to stress, sleep patterns, or an imperfect diet. And guess what? You're going to change every day. Some weeks are stressful, some weeks aren't. You're going to have to know how to change your diet accordingly. I actually first heard about Athletic Greens from Tim Ferriss years ago. He's good friend of mine, been on my podcast, I've been on his. And if you go to their website, you'll also see a testimonial from another friend of mine, Peter Diamandis, who's also been on this podcast repeatedly. So I highly recommend you give it a try today. You can add it to your morning routine. That's what I do. I even look forward to it because when I take it, I feel like I'm signaling to myself that I'm going to have a good day. So I talked to Athletic Greens and we worked out a special offer for you, the listener, right now. As a James Altucher Show listener, you get 20 free travel packs. That's $79 in value with your first purchase. And believe me, I'm about to get on a plane in like an hour. I have one of these travel packs with me. So just jump on over to athleticgreens.com slash James and claim your special offer today. This is available in the US, Canada, UK, and EU. That's athleticgreens.com slash James. Don't miss this. If you want to feel your optimal state of energy, then give yourself a daily routine with Athletic Greens. It's going to be the single best thing you can do for your health and success this year. I can't stress this enough. That's athleticgreens.com slash James to get started. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice 
Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Did you ever read um, uh, uh, Journey to the End of the Night by Celine? No. Um, see, he, he's kind of crazy because of World War One, so he, he doesn't really attribute things, but you have a sense that he's doing a lot of the speaking because he's just rambling a lot, but, uh, he has a lot of repetition. And I think in, in, in your books, for instance, you all, you often have a lot of repetition in sentences to kind of create that extra pacing. And, and, and you talk about the repetition a little bit here, but what's, when you're thinking of doing, you know, what's an example, for instance, that, that you would do it? Uh, repetition. Yeah. Repetition. I would use that, you know, um, like so often, uh, think about think about the movie The Ring. Do you know The Ring? Mm-mm. Citizen Kane. Okay. You don't know The Ring with Naomi Watts? I don't. About the video I'm, you I'm watched that my, kills you? I'm putting you? it on my list right now. Okay, Citizen Kane. You know Citizen Kane? Yes. Okay, Citizen Kane, you see the entire horizontal of the plot right at the very beginning. Charles yeah. Foster Kane is dead. You know, you see the whole newsreel of his life. 
So you know every plot point that we're going to come across. And so as we reach each plot point, your brain is getting a little pop of serotonin. Like, oh yeah, I know that. That was in the newsreel. And The Ring, the Naomi Watts horror movie, is basically about this kind of artsy video you watch and seven days later you die. And so it, the discovery process is in discovering the source of each image and the meaning of each image in that short artsy video. So you see the video at the beginning of the movie and then throughout the discovery process, you get that wonderful pop of, of brain chemistry every time the image is explained. Um, and so those work great. The, what I think of as thumbnail narratives where you get the whole thing in a thumbnail at the beginning so you know the entire horizontal of the plot. And then you see the whole plot unpacked. Titanic, the James Cameron movie, was the same thing. We had to see that computer model at the very beginning to see that computer Titanic, you know, go along and hit the iceberg and start to sink. And we get the narrative of the, the sort of geeky guy saying it starts to sink at the bow and then it goes up on end and then it breaks in half and then it goes to the bottom. So we've got the whole horizontal. We know what's going to happen. And so we can pay attention to the emotional vertical of the story as we see it actually dramatized. And so at the moment that the ship goes up on end and breaks in half, we're not thinking, whoa, wait, what? The ship broke in half? What the hell is that all about? We've already been told that's going to happen. We've already been told that, that, that uh, Citizen Kane is going to build Xanadu. None of these things are surprises. But what I like to do is keep the past constantly present in the narrative. And by establishing a chorus or a reference back to previous events that can be reiterated later in the story, you are keeping a more sort of cumulative idea of the narrative. And past plot points always are present because they're always kind of reiterated in a very repetitious chorus of some sort um, so that the story doesn't occur as something linear in which things are constantly consumed and discarded. Uh, the story is more of a, an accumulation that you carry with you over the, over the whole course of the book. Um, it's exactly kind of the opposite of the thumbnail narrative where we learn everything up front and then discover its meaning. Yeah, so what do you think about that? So, so you're saying you don't like to be here's the whole story, you know, you, you know, how do you view the beginning of a, of a story? You know, you can do that in a book. Uh, my, my best teacher, Tom Spanbauer, did that really beautifully in the opening chapter of The Man Who Fell in Love with the Moon. It's all a kind of synopsis of the entire plot you're about to get. And in my book, Rant, I basically do that. The entire opening scene is a guy sitting in an airplane seat and he tells a synopsis of the entire story that you're about to read. Um, it's hard to do because it, it has to be kept really short and concise, and it has to be memorable at the same time. And it can't provide too many details, or it's the book. Well, exactly. It can't be, and that's why it's got to be kept short. And, and, and you have to keep the vertical out of it. So just to define what you mean by vertical, it's sort of the emotional ups and downs of the characters becomes the real story. So in Titanic, right. you know the Titanic's going down, and most people are dying. You don't know anything about the love story that's about to occur. Right, exactly. 
it, the, the vertical is the psychological and emotional accumulation of, of weight throughout the story. And you would think counterintuitively that that ruins the story, but it doesn't. Like Citizen Kane mm -hmm. and Titanic are great examples where you don't need to know, you don't need to have cliffhangers on the horizontal, but the vertical is like, how did the two lovers meet on the Titanic? How did they fall in love? How did they overcome love? Citizen Kane, how did he, you know, have his dreams and create this empire and then it gets to him and possibly kills him and, and so on. And, and then the ring, you see those, those art film images so many times, but you never get bored of them because they're so, they have no meaning. They have no explanation. And you're just craving a definition. What do they mean? What is, what is this inferring? What is this referring to? So describe again your alternative to that. I'm, I'm trying to understand because this is like a big debate, right? In, in writing is how much you give up in that first paragraph. And it really just depends on how you choose to tell the story, whether you wanted to use flashbacks or flash forwards. Uh, did you ever see they shoot horses, don't they? No. Oh my gosh. Oh my I don't God. feel so More bad notes. about not having read Celine. <laughs> don't worry about it. We're, we're going to, we're going to exchange a lot of stuff that we have read. Um, I am a confession, a public confession. I am a complete sucker for 1970s romantic fatalism. Because when the I conversation, was... conversation, which with, is kind of that. Uh, the I don't even know that. Well, it's uh, Richard. Well, who was the, the conversation? Was, um, yeah, Coppola and what's the gene? No, who's the, the main guy? Such a beautiful movie. It was like in between Godfathers. <laughs> Talk about Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman. Yeah. Anyways, go ahead. Um, in They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Which is basically a really claustrophobic movie that takes place during a Depression-era marathon dance contest. Jane Fonda, uh, David Sarazen. And there are these strange little moments throughout the movie that are basically between major sort of acts of, of the story where we see uh, the male protagonist in these kind of Kafka-esque, uh, very artsy situations, completely unexplained. And they're basically flash-forwards to things, things that take place after the end of the movie. So we're seeing the movie that takes place after the movie, during the movie. So flash-forwards work beautiful in that case. Yeah, and that's like that uh, uh, Arrival, which was both a short story by uh, an Asian science fiction writer, uh, Ken Ju, XIU, but also became a movie um, where these aliens land and this woman has to communicate with them and they're communicating by, time is sort of one dimensional to mm -hmm. them. So they, they're communicating by different moments in time in her life. Mm -hmm. And so she sees these images and you don't, you never have a sense what's past, what's future until it all sort of wraps up, which is an interesting structure. And Slaughterhouse-Five does that beautiful too. Yeah, Slaughterhouse-Five and explicitly does it. They say right at the top, they're going to do it. You're everywhere yeah the, it's and the original short story fight club that's why i used the the rules because i just wanted sort of touchstones that people would transition through that uh, they wouldn't necessarily even read the rule the second or the third time they saw it but it would temporally signal it would signal to them that we were jumping temporally in time and place but i feel you also use repetition though in let's say a main character is thinking you might repeat something just because the character's thinking harder about it. Uh, I feel like you use repetition as a, as a temporal spacing device too. You're slowing down over some concept that 
the the main character and hence the reader should should think about a little more because after the first time they read it they're not really sub vocalizing subsequent times they read it and so it acts as a as a pause the way an actor would put a pause in dialogue so you're controlling the the delivery of the story by repeating things in that way you know in invisible monsters my third book i use that phrase sorry mom sorry god as that kind of sorbet that so many cultures have this sorbet that they say at the moment when nobody knows what to say and the silence has to be bridged. And uh, in Catholicism, we always said it must be seven minutes after the hour because supposedly Christ died at seven minutes after the hour. And I know I have Jewish friends who say a Jewish baby has just been born because that's how you bridge that silence and allow mm. for a new topic to be introduced. Mm. And this is, this is kind of related to another thing. I mean, by the way, I shouldn't keep saying another thing you say in the book. Everything I'm talking about is what you say in the book. But you have um, often a group or a community in a novel you write will have kind of, will start developing their own language, mm -hmm. right? Their own. And again, this is like uh, Kurt Vonnegut's Cat's Cat's Cradle as well. But in in your books, and you describe in real life how your college friends would often say things if if there was food on someone's face. But yeah. you know, and I see this in podcast world too, like. A podcaster will start, they'll start using certain words in common uh, and then their fans start using them in the comments of the podcast. And it is a way to, to use language to build community. And it does, it all goes back to Victor Turner and the idea of this experimental limnoid thing that we live in and accepting it and getting to play with it. It's just so much fun. You know, um, I'm really fascinated also by, by how temporal spacing is used in kind of a narrative so so i'll tell you it's a, a little segue but you'll relate to it in like 1991 or 90 or 92 i started seeing this one author appear in all these literary journals and the stories were so amazing i would just i would just kind of basically copy them and collect them and, and read everyone over and over again and then finally his book came out uh jesus son by oh, Dennis okay. Johnson. Okay. And I think I've probably read this book in some way or other every week since. Like and and he does this very well or he's he's got this the character you know is named Fuckhead and it's you know it's an interlocking series of short stories all featuring this one kind of drug addict uh character and that he's only referred to as Fuckhead and sometimes he'll be in the middle of this intense scene maybe he's trying driving someone to the hospital who just got shot because he hopes somebody will like him if he does this which is such a vulnerable and yet intense moment someone's someone was shot and is dying and he's rushing the hospital and then you get this vulnerable thing i hope people will like me after this and then he'll suddenly say what else can i say about this moment the mountains look so far away they looked untouchable the sun looked like it was on fire some some unique way of saying things but he goes from like this intense plot-driven thing, someone was shot, to this vulnerable submerging of the eye, to then this 30,000 foot, like, you know, what else can I say, which seems so dissonant with the narrative, but that's the point, really. Well, and sometimes that kind of giant fade into this grand distance, uh, George Saunders does that quite a bit in short mm -hmm. stories, when there's kind of, you don't want to put too much of a bow on the end of the story, 
you've demonstrated everything in that kind of Tobias Wolf, you know, dirty realism way. But the camera's got to go somewhere at the end. So the camera goes off into the distance towards the Smoky Mountains and the sunset. Um, yeah. Right, right, because let's say without that, you know, let's say, you know, the next scene, if the next scene happens too fast, what 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 is happening biologically? Because I, I appreciate that you're really looking at what's biologically or neurologically happening. Like, so we know the next scene, if he went too fast into that, what where's the disappointment in the body somehow? Well, uh, another person I really love to read is, uh, there's a anthropologist named Shirley Bryce Heath. And she says for fiction to work, it really is dependent upon surprise. So there's always got to be a kind of poetic enjambment or a subversion of the expectation. So have people expecting something and then give them something, either a socially inappropriate reaction, which always occurs as humor because it denies the, the drama in the moment, or give them something completely different um, that sort of negates the moment and redirects them very quickly. Right, so like a cliche way to do this might be, this reminds me of something my mother did to me as a kid. That could be a cliche way of doing it where it's just a little too neat to uh, uh, to go from the story to a metaphor about your childhood and then back to the story. So, so Dennis Johnson in that one case is just taking you on this view of the a four and he refers to you know the ice glaciers in the ice age carved out these mountains. Right. He's going four hundred thousand years back in time. So it's just this weird interlude while he's hurrying to the hospital with a guy dying in the back of his shitty car. And in a similar story, but a much more kind of poignant moment is in the story Emergency, where he yeah. is stumbling through this snowy landscape as snow is falling with his friend late at night, and they're both very high. They both work in a hospital emergency room. And he comes over a rise, and he sees angels descending from heaven above a military cemetery, all these white crosses, all in rows. And these angels with their beautiful faces breaking through this wintry black sky. And he realizes this is the second coming of Christ. And he's completely in awe. And he's about to die. He's so just so overwhelmed by this sight. And then the friend he's with is saying, dude, check it out. They're showing movies during a snowstorm. And in that moment, we realize it's a drive-in movie theater. Right. And it's a screening of Cabaret. And his friend looks at him and says, what'd you think it was? And Fuckhead says, oh, I thought it was something else. Yeah. And all of his awe is so... Uh, so overwhelmed in that moment, so denied in that moment, I, I thought it was something else. That it's heartbreaking, but it's also really funny. Right, like it's almost like, again, it's this way of separating out, there's this rawness to him being high. They just had this experience in this hospital. And, uh, 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 it, and again, the hospital is somehow also you you think about death, you think about the afterlife, you think about so many things in the context of hospital. You also think about just what's happening right now, the the infinite misery and sadness of all the patients in some cases. But so he takes that to the limit and then you're in, then you're back down to reality with the movie theater. But then he he a few paragraphs later, he says, or that might have been another time. So suddenly yeah. that whole story is like wiped out. Yeah. But we're still in the story. <laughs> 
Like it's still him driving around with this guy, but like all reality is distorted. It's almost like he, at least in those first initial stories in Jesus' son, reality is just sort of suggestion while he's moving through his story. And that brings us to the biggest distinction in writing. Strippers and comedians. What, what do you got on stage? You got strippers. Strippers raise the tension. They raise the tension. They raise the tension. And just at that moment when something bad is going to happen, you bring on a comedian. And comedians cut the tension. And they make you laugh and they make you laugh. And they kind of give you that symbolic, huge orgasmic relief of laughing. And then they bring out another stripper. And so it's that constant sort of heightening of the dramatic stakes and then cutting of the drama and then raising the drama to a greater level and then cutting the drama. And that's something wonderful to do in fiction. That is so much fun. So so what do you think he's doing there with the, or that might have been another time, and now they're kind of in the, the spring driving around and instead of the winter. Like what's, what's, it allows, what's happening there? It allows him to come to the sublime multiple times. It allows for multiple orgasms. It allows him to broach sentimentality for that wonderful length of time, but not for too long, not for a Thomas Kincaid painter of light long. And he allows himself to cut it at very the fast. Yeah. Or, that, or like, it's just that one line or that right. might be another time. He doesn't address it any further and he goes into the next part of the story. And, and then he allows us to ramp up to an, another sublime moment before he cuts it. And so the idea is to bring the reader up in these kind of graduated ways, but not too quickly and not for too long, an extended length of time. And I would argue that, that he knows on an intuitive level that our brain chemistry will not allow for the sustained sustainment of schmaltz, that schmaltz has got to be cut before it can be achieved on a greater level. Right, so he cuts it with the, oh, we were in a drive-in, it wasn't angels. And then he cuts it again, that may or may not have even have happened. <laughs> and because uh, they're all high, they've got things going on. And then they're driving around and don't the rabbits die next? Yeah, the rabbits die next. I forget which reality that was in now. Um, it was that same story. But, yeah, yeah but, it was definitely the same story. I forget whether it was before the movie theaters or or it might have been, it might have bridged both scenes actually. I thought it happened after the morning because... Uh, yeah, yeah, he yeah, wakes whatever. up. Yeah. They wake up yeah. and and he slept on the rabbits. Right. Uh, you know, in that same collection, not to give away all the spoilers is... No, I love that we're talking about this because, A, I know that you've, you're the, I read an interview like maybe a year ago, you said you've read this like 300 times. And I'm like thinking, okay, I'm not insane that I've also probably read this over 300 times. Um, Dirty Wedding, when yeah. he takes Michelle in for her abortion and the nurse comes to him in the waiting room and, she's, and she says, um, Michelle is is at peace now or Michelle is fine now? And suddenly he says, uh, apropos of, of that, he says, is she dead? And the nurse says, uh, no, no, why would you say that? And he says, I kind of wish she was. And the story is just a freak out moment. The nurse starts calling for security. But that, that horrible honesty of I kind of wish she was right uh, just makes you want to read Dennis Johnson for the rest of your life so he does this submerging of the eye there and it's also cutting the sublime like in the sense that in another part of that story you know you have religious people whispering into the ear right of his 
girlfriend while she's going towards the facility to have the abortion. And he never, he it's only in his imagination what is happening in that moment between the religious, there's always this kind of respect somehow for the mysterious that mm-hmm. he, that the character fuckhead has. And by the way, that I never thought about before, but character named fuckhead with Jesus son, that's a way of cutting the sublime with just the really direct, this guy's a fuckhead. You know, and it is a kind of arriving at the profound through the profane. And that's, for me, that's always been the goal is to, you know, maybe have 200 pages of profanity, but to be just to, just to arrive at one page of maybe not profundity, but some, some moment of grace. Uh, some, and that's the end of Jesus' son, uh, the Beverly Holmes story, is arriving at that kind of most extended moment of grace. Yeah, or I think almost at the end of every one of those stories, there's a little bit of that moment building up to that. Like Jack Hotel, uh, first off, there's that moment again where you have one reality all built up and he feels like nobody's his friend because nobody told him that Jack Hotel was going to prison. But then we realize he was completely wrong. He realized he was completely wrong. It's a different time again. Jack Hotel was actually the savior and got not going to prison. But the end of that story you know, I am still alive. <laughs> yeah. Uh, every, uh, that's why that book is, it's going to be around forever and ever. The, I mentioned Mark McGurl earlier and McGurl had a theory that, uh, that every 20 years or so, uh, college courses, writing programs had to redo their syllabuses. And, and the, the, the easiest way to teach writing or to get people to read is to give them short story collections. So, there is a kind of resurgence or renaissance in short story collections every 20 years uh, because academy programs need them. And so he said, Jesus' son as a short story collection will always be around because it's so easy to teach. Students love it. Uh, likewise, uh, Juno Diaz's Drown will Beautiful always book. be around. You know, short story collections are just so easily consumed. And so I love them because stories are typically very easy to reverse engineer. How did he or she arrive at that? And so you can take them apart and like an engine and figure out what each specific sentence does to get you to that fantastic place. Uh, you, you mentioned Mark Richard. Yeah. His story, This Is Us, excellent, about the two little boys who just get the shit beat out of them by their father. And... He has got a moment in that story where he's talking about the carny and he says, the carny's got tattoos on his arms. They're the kind, they're the color, the kind of color of blue that looks black when you see them through a jailhouse window in the middle of winter. And instantly, as a reader, you think, whoa, wait, that is so totally wrong because how would a kid know this? That is so such a violation of the point of view of this small child. Which goes against your advice in the book. Every time you read it after that, you realize that's a flash forward. That's showing you something that happens after the story, that after the story kills the abusive father, the kid goes and visits the carny in prison. And that's how he knows the simile. And you know, what's interesting there, and, and this is related to all of your works, but also what we've been saying about Dennis Johnson, it's almost like they could have said a million things about what this blue looks like, but they, it seems like all of these people 
you as well, you're, th- you're you, it, it's like you pr- press that extra, you flex that extra muscle. Like, how can I say this in a way that nobody has ever said before? And now he's able to do it to tie into the story in that one situation. All description should describe this, the describer more than it describes the described object. Mm. That wow, that's great. When you describe something, you should say more about yourself than you do about the thing itself. So uh, can I ask another Dennis Johnson, Jesus unquote? I hope, yeah. So, so there's one story, um, uh, I'm, now I'm forgetting the name of the story, but uh, he's, he's just had a fight with his girlfriend, he's getting on a bus, and he says, uh, the, the... The wind whistling through my earring? No, 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 that's, that's a, another one, but the, okay. this, the images of the city um, oh, scrolling through, through the, yeah, scrolling through the windows like a slot machine. Yeah, that's glorious. <laughs> yeah, and so it seems like that's not so. So okay, I want to get to your point about what is it saying about him. But first, that one sentence seems really hard to think because I would have just said, "Oh, the city looked like a mess as I passed through it," or whatever, like some descriptive thing. He's not descriptive at all. Like it's a beautiful way to think of, you know, slot machine implies luck maybe it implies bad luck the kind of people who are at a, an atlantic city casino playing a slot machine there are people down on their luck usually so so i guess that's where he's describing himself and i never thought of it that way like a, the slot machine is the the worst game it's the person who's putting a nickel in and just down and out and that's where he was at that point on the bus and it's right it's the most passive game where you're just going to accept what happens mm. yeah man i'm gonna, I'm gonna have to read jesus son again just for the three hundred and first time, you know, I uh, I got to uh, do a symphony space event a couple of years ago uh, with Billy Crudup, and and Crudup yeah, presented yeah. portions, and we got to talk about Jesus's son, and and we found out later that Dennis Johnson wasn't there because he was too ill. He died maybe a month after that, um, but that was a terrific evening just to talk about how that book kind of focused on the phase of life that we all go through where we're kind of between the family that raised us and the family that will eventually start ourselves. It's that kind of phase where our entire life is fluid and we really have no attachments. Uh, And it's kind of a magic time. Yeah, and also this, he wasn't really a part of a community or group or they were false groups. Like he Mm -hmm. wanted them to like him, but they never really seemed to Pre, they gave him that name, that nickname. They never really appreciated him. And it's finally only by the end that the arc goes through where he's he's still kind of screwed up, but he's accepted. He's found a path to acceptance. Now, that, that's the final line in the book, and I can't remember what it is. Uh, well, I have it right here because I knew it was a common <laughs> interest of ours. Uh, I don't know if I should say it in the thing, but... Um, oh, wait, yeah. Um, yeah, I'll just read the last paragraph. All these weirdos and me getting a little better every day right in the midst of them. I had never known, never even imagined for a heartbeat that there might be a place for people like us. And the us is what just just destroys the reader in a good way. You know, and that moving to the first person plural is kind of glorious in that last moment. Yeah, I never thought of that. Uh, do you want a really similar rush? Have you read Naomi Moon's Miles from Nowhere? 
No. And are you telling me it's a similar rush to this? Because I've been trying for 20 years to find this type of style. You, I envy you so much. It's like you're about to have sex for the first time. Good sex, not like lousy first time (laughs) sex. Namie Moon's Miles from Nowhere. Amy Hempel uh, called me from Chicago. And she said, I've just met this writer, Namie Moon. She's a Korean-American. She's written this short story collection uh, about a 14-year-old girl living on the streets. It's extraordinary. You've got to read it. And I've since gone out and bought copies and copies. It's, it's one of my favorite books to give away. It is so good. You will, you'll lose two, three hours. You'll, you won't put it down. So, so like, so by the way, the one second after this podcast ends, I'm going to get that book. But so there's, it seems like there's that style and I, I I'll, I'll read her, but let's say Dennis Johnson's like the pinnacle of that one type of style. Maybe Raymond Carver fits in there maybe a little bit, Tobias Wolf, And then there's another style, I feel, which is yours, which is very energetic, very descriptive. There's, the characters are really intense in some way. And it, it reminds me of um, maybe T.C. Boyle a little bit in some way. Yours tends to be a little more, use the word transgressional, or uh, your characters are definitely pushing some limit and we have to go along for the ride or not. It's our choice, but either way we get a story. And, and, would you would you kind of define these two styles that way? Well, you know, because um, you both you describe yourself as minimalist, and I wanted to ask about that too, because there's a different styles of minimalism. I'm going to reel it way back to uh, the 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 Mark McGurl book, the Pro- Program Era, and and one of the ideas that McGurl kind of you know floats is is that uh, academic writing programs, in order to assign standardized grades had to, in effect, standardize fiction. So modern literary fiction, not genre fiction, but literary fiction, is now, it has to be one of three different forms. It has to be techno-modernism, which he would say it was David Foster Wallace and Thomas Pynchon and Gaddis, or it has to be um, uh, high-cultural pluralism, which would be anything from a marginalized standpoint, uh, Cisneros, Sandra Cisneros, um, Amy Tan, uh, Colson Whitehead. Would you put Juno Diaz in that? What's that? Would you put Juno Diaz in that? Exactly. And the third is dirty realism, which is sometimes called Kmart realism, which is Joyce Carol Oates, Raymond Carver, Dennis Johnson, um, uh, Tobias Wolf. Bukowski. Exactly. Yeah. And so, if it's not one of those three, it's really, really hard to get it into the culture because the culture has become kind of clamped down in the same way that academia has been clamped down. Um, but when it does violate those, that's what I'm trying to do, is trying to write something that's not techno-modernism, high cultural pluralism, or dirty realism. Um, and that's something that Vonnegut did. Yeah, you're right, because he... He sort of takes the skeleton of this pulp science fiction form while writing a serious novel about World War II, mm-hmm. you know, or you know, you know, the the death of the U.S. economy and frontier and whatever. So, so, but he 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 structures it in this kind of familiar pulp science fiction, nineteen fifties pulp science fiction style. And in a way, too, he kind of mixes up. You could argue that all three of those because. Billy Pilgrim in the army 
is one thing. Billy Pilgrim, present day with his wife, is dirty realism. Billy Pilgrim on the other planet with a porn star is science fiction or high techno modernism. Um, so you could argue that he takes all three of those forms of literary fiction and just intercuts them. Well, okay, so let me, and I don't know if this is too much in the weeds for listeners, but at this point I don't care because this is the only time I'm going to get to ask these questions. With 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 Pynchon, Gaddis, and David Foster Wallace, I feel like it's a little different because they're, it's almost like they're, and all credit to them, everybody's so much smarter and, and better than me, but it's almost like their fiction doesn't make sense until you dive in on the structure and see how the actual structure of the novel is in itself telling the story. Like the way the characters are named, the way they describe things, the, the pacing and the and the vocabulary of the characters, this, that's almost just as much the story as the story. And that's uh, one of the defining characteristics, according to McGurl, is that it's fiction that is really aware that it's fiction. So it happens on a really meta level, mostly. Yes, for me, that that's unreadable. <laughs> but but and I understand in college, everybody's reading either Ulysses or Gravity's Rainbow. I get yeah. it. But uh, Slaughterhouse Five doesn't seem that way to me. It seems like uh, uh, even when he's on, he, it does seem science fiction. Those parts when he's on, you know, wherever Titan or wherever. But or wherever he was, I forget now. No, he was on Tromalfador. Right. And um, uh, uh, Sirens of Titan was another one. Tromalfador. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, That's yeah. it. And uh, so it doesn't really, it, it borders on that, but it doesn't really seem like that. Like it's readable. No, no, it's, it's not a pure sort of, uh, yeah. uh, just sort of floating an idea. That, I'm not saying it's it's that exactly. But I guess there's a pluralism in there too, though, because or there's a community because it starts. That's that that all. That's now has a weird structure because at the beginning, right, it it's starts got the off two almost war memoirs. buddies together, and so it's very dirty realism in the, on the front end. Yeah, because yeah. in because in chapter one, it's him visiting his war buddy and telling the wife's stories. yelling at them like, "You're just going to write a war story," right. and then he gets into Billy so Pilgrim. It is kind of fake meta in that way. Yeah. You could argue that it does fulfill that. Yeah. But it's also this, what you're talking about, mixing of, this clever mixing of tenses, you know, n- you know, narrative points of view. I like this idea that you're bringing up in, in this book, Consider This, which is, uh, it's interesting if you can, if it fits into a narrative, you could mix anything. You can mix like your time periods, you can mix realities like, like Dennis Johnson does in this weird, like drug-like way. You could mix genres like uh, uh, Vonnegut does in Slaughterhouse-Five, as long as you have this, your own global sense of what is the story I'm trying to tell. And you bring that up later in the book. I, there's a quote uh, I underlined, um, so now I have to find it, um, where you ask the questions, you know, where is this? Why is this? I forgot the exact questions you ask. Um, so I hope I could find it. I don't know. You ask these questions that that... I know I'm not going to find it now. No, is it in the troubleshooting section? No, um, or maybe. Anyway, there are these three questions you have to ask to move. Why? Why is this story even existing? You know, who is saying it? Why are they saying it? There are some questions you ask yourself, and I think that's important. That uh, that uh, the writer, whether or not they're kind of making it up as they go along, or they kind of plotted it all out from the beginning, they have to have so, some sort of sense of the reasons why they're writing this 
it seems. Otherwise, Dennis Johnson probably wouldn't have been able to flow in from this drug-like world to another drug-like world so seamlessly without understanding why he was doing it. You know, and that is something I understood was important for Gordon Lish because Lish taught the man who taught me. And so my teacher said that Lish always said that context was incredibly important in in fiction because nowadays people really want to know who's telling the story because they know that the teller of the story and the reason for telling the story shapes the story and might be even more important than the story itself. So in order to to make the story seem as real as possible, um, you need to handle the context of the story and the agenda of the story as well as the story itself. Yeah, so that's why like in that Mark Richard example, you said he he knows for you know where he's where this character is going and so you can then use a variety of devices as crazy as they could be to as long as it fits into this context i think i think raymond carver is a little bit more um sort of i don't want to say linear sounds like i'm saying stupid but almost linear in the sense that he does know his context and so i mentioned raymond carver because obviously he's a, a a known student of gordon lish but he, it's almost his stories are more linear, even though there's a little, sometimes there's a glimpse like, you know, where he'll say something like in the beginning, you know, I wish we knew later, you know, I wish we knew now what we knew later or something like that. He'll bring up some point about the future, but it still stays pretty linear as opposed to really stretching. But it, it does seem when you keep context, you can stretch as far as possible without going David Foster Wallace crazy. Yeah. And, and, and you that do that too. Like, uh, let's just take a short story of yours. Um, gosh, I'm sorry, I forget the name, but it's the one where guy's about to have sex with a girl and he's injected him his oh. his piece. He's exposed himself to genital warts so that he can change the size and shape of his uh, of his penis. Yeah, not, and I got the sense, not just genital warts, with like everything he can get right, right. from the prostitutes. So he's basically creating this work of art down there. And we're kind of... There, it's a cliffhanger, right? You're not saying the story, what the end is in the beginning. We know, we know all we know in the beginning is something intimate, maybe is about to happen, but there might be a controversy. <laughs> there's there's a question about what's going to happen when he pulls his pants down, and and so there, there's this heightening of tension and this cliffhanger, and he's you know he, he, there's a little bit of going back and forth to the past, um, and there's a little bit of imagery that we're almost thinking he's almost telling us the reader get ready for the the worst horror movie you've ever seen or love <laughs> yeah like and 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 that happens right up until the very last line right uh where you know i won't give them away the end but so what's happening there? there there's obviously a context and it's somewhat linear but there's other things you're doing too which is you're taking the reader beyond their comfort zone in a different way and you're also establishing plausibility through gradual sort of uh, heightening of uh, cultural precedent, which hmm. I'm not sure if I invented the term cultural precedent, but it's the idea of taking what people know and using that to bridge to what they don't know so that they will accept it. When they were making the movie Fight Club, somebody on set once asked David Fincher, do you think audiences will accept the big twist? I thought that was reveal? you on set asking him that. <laughs> And I, it was somebody else, and I think I was just listening in on it. And and Fincher said, if they believe every wild thing up to this moment, 
then they will believe the big thing. And and my favorite example is uh, people who are authorities on stained glass windows told me that the the artists really focused on the sandals, the plants, the folds of the clothing, the things that are closest to the viewer. Because if medieval illiterate people could see the plants from their own lives, could see what they already knew, then as their gaze drifted upward towards the incredible, then they would accept the incredible if it was based on cultural precedent that they already knew. You know, also there's... um. I wonder if that's the right analogy, and I, I respect what you're saying that that it is. But there's another thing going on there. There's a cognitive bias in what David Fincher is saying, which is that if you invest the time into watching this movie, mm-hmm. your it's a it's kind of a what's called sunken cost fallacy. Like my cost is the time mm. I put into this. So my brain, the brain will never let you think you're stupid. People mm-hmm. tend to think they're smarter than they are. The brain will never let, let you think you're stupid. So if you've invested this time and you're and you're enjoying the movie so far, your brain and then something happens. What he's really saying is your brain's not going to let you think after you've spent all this time that something irrational just happened. So I don't know if you're familiar with the fine literary art of email copywriting, but uh, if you get an email advertisement, it's not just hey here's CBD oil buy this it might be a 40-page email because they'll filter out the non-customers in the first page or two. But then if someone's going to read all 40 pages, they're going to be a buyer because their brain's telling them, well, you read all these 40 pages for a reason. Now you, you probably think this is good. Now you're going to buy. So because so, so I, I always wonder, why are these emails always 40 pages? And hmm. that's the reason. I had no idea. Yeah. Uh, um, but back to uh, that one story, which was originally called Garden of Ethan, about the uh, genital warts, it starts with all these very sort of standard body modifications and how uh, they were accepted and how they were, you know, they, they kind of, you know, they ramp up. And so each one is introduced, made plausible, accepted, acknowledged until the ultimate reveal of what his body modification is. And so this kind of moving from the cultural precedent of what people know and gradually stepping them up to what they don't know so that they accept it. Well, and it's also, uh, right. So, so another, so it's, it's the body modification, but it's also the standard trope that we all know of that, those first intimate moments where, Oh, who's going to take off their shirt first. Who's going to take off their pants first. And so, which is narrated in a billion stories. So you're borrowing that, I hate to use the word trope, but you're borrowing from that structure and then kind of, so we all identify, okay, is this going to be, what's going to happen? And we're, we, we, we've bought into the structure because we've seen that before and we've experienced that before, but then you take your own twist and turn, your transgression. And, uh, uh, you know, I found, I found that fascinating that you're borrowing probably from multiple structures, like the body modification one, the first moments of intimacy one to take it in and then you 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 get in the reader's confidence this way and then it's like totally screwed up after that and it works out loud you know i hate going on tour with a story that doesn't work out loud and uh there's no way to save a book event if the story doesn't work and it's a story that grabs hold of people 
and keeps them on board and that they love uh, Guts was like the penultimate story like that. Oh, that's the story where I won't give any way plot except for the fact that seven uh, up to date, 73 people have passed out while you're telling the story. No, I, I quit counting years ago at 73. And <laughs> since then, it's in the hundreds. Oh, uh, my God. I can't even imagine. Well, you're telling people to hold their breath a little bit, too, which is part of it. That's the very first thing in this story. Uh, this story will last as long as you can hold your breath and then just a little bit longer. So listen as fast as you can, which is kind of a paradox. I mean, how do you listen any faster than what's being told to you? Uh, and I love that that crazy little paradox at the beginning. Listen as fast as you can. Yeah, see, that's interesting too because, right, so you're you're starting with a sentence that's kind of meaningless. And yet, it's like you said too. It starts with the imperative, inhale. Yeah, yeah. Take in as much breath as you possibly can. This story will last as long as you can hold your breath and then just a little bit longer. So listen as fast as you can. And then it cuts to description. A friend of mine, when he was 13 years old, he heard all about pegging. At 13 years old, my friend's a little sex maniac. He's always looking for a better way to get off. So, and then it goes into what pegging oh, is. Oh, I was holding my, my breath right now. I thought you were going to tell the whole story. But so okay. it starts in the imperative, second person. It hints at the first person, a friend of mine. And by doing so, it submerges the eye. It says, we're going to talk about somebody else. And then it immediately moves into descriptive third person see okay so but let me ask you about the listen as fast as you can how'd you come up with that line because you must be thinking to yourself this doesn't make any sense and yet of course it fits into the story because if you don't listen as fast as you can you're going to pass out somehow it makes logical sense even though it's meaningless <laughs> i wish i knew if i knew how things like that you know came into stories i would do them constantly, but but it but it fits into this idea of yours that makes sense, and this idea of, of that you're quoting from Gordon Lish oh. of of there's a context, so you could play within that context as long as you don't go too far that the entire story is meaningless. Well, and also you and can. This, by the way, this applies to nonfiction, like narrative nonfiction as well. Uh, um, before I lose it, you can have those wonderful moments when a character gets it really wrong because it makes the reader feel smart and it makes mm. the reader like the character more. Like in Choke, where the stripper, who is a, naturally a blonde, dyes her hair black after she finds out that blondes have a higher rate of skin cancer. You know, when you read it, you're, th you're thinking, what an idiot. But you're also really liking her. But that narrative makes sense. Right, because the the words themselves, you could you could imagine someone who's not so smart thinking that or saying that. So, but I guess what you're saying here is the narrative here, just in telling the story, is almost a little haphazard, you know. Hence, and it's also delivered in the imperative, and people are less likely to question the imperative. Uh, or, or 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 again, like that Dennis Johnson uh, scene where again he's driving fast down the to the hospital in the middle of the desert. And then suddenly, what else can I say about this? It's this intensely first-person thing. Like you're out of the story and then and you switch to this intensely first-person thing. It's unreliable in the way that maybe a drug addict would be unreliable. Yeah, yeah. Because you have the authority. It's totally within character to do that. Yeah. And so 
but it's interesting the ways you can play with that authority to, to, you still have to stay something unique. He, he couldn't just say, um, the road was gritty and, you know, cars were passing us and I was afraid they would look, he couldn't, it didn't want to make sense to just stick with a straight narrative and, and pace it out that way. And he also, he does that wonderful trick of perspective. He says, it's almost as if we're standing still and the earth is just turning beneath our wheels. And so that is such a wonderful cognitive reframing of the scene that it refreshes the scene in our mind. It's not just a car driving down a road. It's actually a car standing still and the road turning beneath the car. You know, it's almost an exercise. Like each one of these things you suggest, and e like let's take this concept of cognitive reframing. Um, it's almost like learning how to dance the tango. There's so many things to remember. Like you have so many different amazing suggestions in this. Just like there's so many steps. If you're learning a dance for the first time and you're learning the tango or salsa or whatever, you can't remember every foot move and hand move and twirl and whatever. Um, it's almost like an, a homework assignment. You've got to, okay, try doing a story, true or not, with this cognitive reframing that makes sure it fits the context of the character just try that once. Okay, now try, let's go from first person to second person to third person. Now let's try, let's go from um, description to, uh, uh, you know, imp imperative to uh, exclamation. Because yeah. it's hard to keep, I can't, you, no one's going to read this and say, okay, now I'm ready to write a novel and just use all of these techniques. It's kind of like you have to have a repetition on each one. Well, and that's one reason why I put the, the sort of narrative anecdotes between them. To, to demonstrate it, illustrate it at the same time that I was talking about it in the abstract. Well, and what then, so you have these chapters, uh, you know, on the tour. So you tell these experiences of yourself on the tour and reading. And I, and you just said that, like, you know, how you're thinking about how you read a story out loud when you're writing these stories. And that connects very much with, with your, the techniques you're describing, where it's very much about what is the body going through, which I don't think I've ever thought about. So for instance, and I never thought about this, uh, you say don't use or try to avoid using to be words like is, was, instead use or have words. Or have words. She had red hair. It's right. the worst way of saying it. He had a hammer. Yeah, right. he had a hammer. Uh, that passive has or to be language is death. Yeah, and you, you quote, I guess, research, which is that, uh, uh, again, I, I, I might have said this before, that the brain now w with is the brain doesn't do anything. But when you say he swung the armor around his head, uh, the brain thinks it's doing it. So parts of the brain are lighting up and they've tested this, I guess, or something. And uh, I, I think I, in my own stuff, I get used to writing is or was because it feels minimalist. You kind of get to the end of the sentence as quickly as possible. And, but you're right. It's, but does it ever get cliche if like every sentence you're trying to find an action verb to describe what's going on it doesn't if you don't overdo it you know my you, my students from the beginning they suddenly turn into movie cameras where everything has to be moved through the scene in every way and the scenes go on far too long in that very dynamic way and that does get boring you've got to you know do the motion you've got to introduce something different you've got to introduce something different you've got to revisit things in motion will you ever pace by going back to the is was for a little bit and then going back occasionally and i will allow my students to have like one is or has verb on a page uh, 
Because do you ever do it structurally? So one character who's more boring than another? No, you, just, you know, it is really just a moment when, a moment of sort of, we're just flying over, a completely in an unimportant moment. Or maybe a moment where if you had a more specific verb, it would just be too precious. You want it to be kind of a bland moment. Because I sort of feel like, and and I could be wrong because I haven't tried it, and I ha- and now I'm going to go back through books I love and your books and 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 see the use of it. Uh, it sort of feels like if everything's an action verb, it's going to feel like a, someone's using a thesaurus too much. That's if you use too much description. If you keep somebody moving, it's when when you, if you have a dog or if you see something in motion, your mind, your awareness follows it without thinking. Where is it going? Where's that squirrel going? Unless maybe it's a squirrel in your house. But if you see something in motion, you, on some sort of predatory or prey level, you watch it in motion. That's the only time when your eyes do not move in small jerks is when they're following something that is moving. And then your eyes move unconsciously and smoothly. And that is why a thing in motion is used in hypnosis and in therapy. Because as your eye is following that moving thing, it disengages your kind of cognitive, intellectual, analytical awareness. And it puts you into the story on a really gut level. Mm. So as long as you don't overuse it, it's a way of pulling people in against their will. But again, you say you'll allow people, you know, your students, uh, the occasional is, was, had, is it occasional or like how do you over you how do you avoid overusing the it, action it's like using salt in food it's kind of something you you do to taste so again it's like an exercise like just write a story now everywhere you want to use is which by the way is really hard to do because i tried it this morning it's really hard to like take out mm-hmm. all of your is's and that's the whole point is you're wearing ankle weights so that you get stronger you're not doing the default thing of using is and has a lot. You become hyper aware of it so that you're less likely, you're more, you're more likely to exercise your verbs. Use a, a more specific verb, uh, envision the scene more carefully. You know, I uh, a couple of years ago took ping pong lessons <laughs> and been playing all my life since I was a little kid. Turns out everything I was doing was wrong. And every habit I had built since I was six years old was completely wrong. Mm-hmm. And so the teacher is a great teacher, one of the best players in, in the United States, if not the world. And he showed me the right way of doing things. And I thought I was just, and I we took lessons for six months. And I was just going to crush everybody. I lost like every point after that mm-hmm. because I was so out of my comfort zone after 30 years of having bad habits. And so, uh, I write every day, probably between one and 3,000 words a day since 1990. This is, I think this is just going to crush me for the next six months, but we'll see. You know, this is stuff that has been taught to me or advised to me over 25, 30 years. And so I've gotten it so, so, so gradually. And the four most important people who who endorsed Fight Club were Catherine Dunn, who wrote Geek Love. Yeah. Uh, Tom Jones. um, By the uh, way. The other book I want to talk about. Pugilist Arrest, fantastic book. Great collection of short stories. And Cold Snap, all his other collections of short stories. Um, now I've forgotten. So it was Dennis Johnson, Tom Jones, Catherine Dunn, uh, Robert Stone. It was Barry Hanna, not Dennis Johnson. And when I found out that Catherine had died, it meant all four of them had died. 
And so I wrote this book as a kind of sort of desperate attempt to, to curate all this advice I'd gotten from so many bright people, including Ira Levin, that I wrote back and forth with for years. Yeah, I was surprised at that connection. And that makes sense now, knowing his stuff and your stuff, that, okay, we're going to take this normal situation and we're going to just figure out a way to slice this in an extreme way beyond people's comfort zone. Oh, we're going to, this girl's not only going to be pregnant, she's going to have the antichrist as a baby. And we're going to move to this beautiful community where all the women are turned into sex robots. You know, and because Ira Levin so beautifully illustrates, people think that the solution of the story is the smart thing. No, it's not. It, getting off the Nostromo is not the smart thing. The smart thing is the fact that you've invented this fantastic monster that pops out of people's chests and changes form over the course of the, over the movie. So coming up with a fantastic problem is 99% of a great story. And Ira Levin knew that. That it's a fantastic problem, not the great solution. So so let me ask you two questions about that. Because you quote Ursula Le Guin saying to you, um, when you solve a problem, so she kind of mentioned something never, similar. About, yeah, never solve something without raising a greater threat. Yeah. Right. So even at the end, like that's why the movie Aliens, at the very end, or Alien, whatever the first one was, there's a bigger alien being born, you know, and so it sets the stage for sequels. But... Uh, uh, I thought that was such an interesting thing that, uh, and I don't know if it always applies. Like, again, we just read the last paragraph of Dennis Johnson's book. We see that there's, well, I guess he raises the problem that it wasn't just him being crazy the entire book. We're all crazy. <laughs> so that's the bigger problem. Well, and also at the end of, uh, and this is why I, I always advise my students, don't use death as a resolution because the reader has to go on with their life. And so... This acknowledgement at the end that we all have to go back to life and we all have to live tomorrow, we all have to live the moment the book is closed. I think that's one of the beautiful things that that he does at the end of that story is that he gives us sort of a, a comfort and a completion while acknowledging that there is no comfort and there is no completion. Yeah, and I thought, because I, it's, it's very cliche to end a book with someone's final moments of life. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, And so, but also you mentioned something very interesting in this book, which is have a death before the story starts. Like the mother died before the story starts. Sunset Boulevard, the monkey died. Yeah, because you're you're showing the transition between one way of being that has been successful for a long period of time and the next way of being which hasn't yet been achieved. So that's why Fight Club starts at the moment just as Tyler is about to be created because his way of being as a good, obedient kid is starting to fall apart like it does in your late 20s when you realize that if you follow all the rules you've been taught, it's not going to work for you. That That's the point where you realize you have to kind of quit being the good kid. And I think actually that's important for the beginning of almost every story, mm-hmm. that the world you thought existed doesn't exist. That's why he starts Slaughterhouse-Five in such an interesting way where he's talking about the book in this meta way. He could write a war story like From Here to Eternity, but the wife of his best friend says, don't do that. Little kids are dying. And 
And it's interesting, too, because it uses the kind of gritty, realistic device as on the front of Citizen Kane, where we get this kind of nonfiction device that seems very, very real. And in doing, it sort of sets the story. It gives a, uh, an authority to the story by putting it on the front end and giving a context to the story. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it seems like some nonfiction does this by asking a question like, you know, like I'll think of Malcolm Gladwell's outliers. I'll see why do why do hockey players who are born in January do much better than hockey players born in November? But uh, do you mention something in here about starting with a question? You because you start with imperatives uh, in in some cases. I'm trying to think now of I'm mixing writing advice. But what's your? I am not a big fan of rhetorical questions. Uh, I seldom use them, and I kind of dissuade my students from using them because they can be used badly too easily. And forgive me, I have a 7 o'clock dinner appointment, so I need to know what time it is. Oh, it's, uh, time to... Okay, you got to go. <laughs> uh, oh, my God. I have like I will, a thousand more questions. I will when text, are you coming back to New York? Well, let me text uh, the dinner people. and uh, I, I can maybe sum it up in like 15 more minutes of questions. You're, you've got the first year of your MFA studies. I know. This... By the way, I really ha I've written 22 books. I really do write one to 3,000 words a day, and I've read everything. So this is like the most... This and Tim O'Brien coming on the podcast is the reasons I started a podcast. So wish I was about to discuss your notion of lists. All right. So uh, I have put in my apologies for being late. All right. Where, where do you have to be? At, at It's a place called Ribbon. At ninety at seventy second. Oh yeah, it'll take you five minutes to get there. Okay. I know the place. And then, okay. So what time is it right now? It's ten till. When do you, when do your friends think you're gonna get there? We're gonna plan this so you're gonna get there on time. Uh, I think our seven fifteen was our our reservation. Okay, so you're gonna get there by seven thirty. <laughs> okay. And at seven fifteen on the dot, when he goes to the bathroom, call him an Uber. Okay. And to going to Ribbon on seventy second Street. Okay. It's seven blocks. And I could just walk that. That's not a big deal. Uber will be faster. We're going to get you fast. The Uber will, will, will walk you down. It'll be right there. So, okay. Another important thing <laughs> that you get to is borrowing structures that have worked forever to set the spine of a story. So, for instance, you describe lists. More importantly, borrowing nonfiction structures yeah. that have worked forever. Because the nonfiction structure automatically gives authority or gravity, realism, realism to your story. And maybe most importantly, it dictates transitions. Uh, because nonfiction structures have also, see also, see also at the end of each chapter or something, it references to other plot points. So you can use these nonfiction structures, like the rules in Fight Club. It's a nonfiction structure. And it acts as a transitional device that allows you to sort of jump around but also make past moments present. So what's what's uh, what's an example of another nonfiction structure? Like, is, is it ex explicit in the sense that, let's take something like uh, The Legend of Bagger Vance by Stephen Pressfield, which kind of, it's this 1920s story of a golf player and his caddy who's kind of his mentor and very mysterious, and it mimics the structure of beat by beat, every single beat, it mimics the structure of the Bhagavad Gita. Oh, okay. So, which you could argue is a piece of text that's been focus grouped over 3,000 years successfully 
And so he just borrows a structure knowing that there's something primal so that people will like it if he follows it beat by beat. So is, is, like, is that sort of an example? Not necessarily because it's a uh, literary form as opposed to a kind of uh, nonfiction, factual uh, form. Like uh, I, I did one book that was based on Walter Winchell's columns and all the devices used in the items of Winchell's columns. Mm. Um, my book Choke is based on the 12-step, fourth step, where you make a complete and relentless inventory of your transgressions. You have to write a history of your addiction. Um, I see. So, so for instance, um, I mean, if uh, this is a, a standard form, but writing uh, writing a novel in the form of letters back and forth to epistolary, yeah, yeah, and um, or writing something in newspaper format, or and again, epistolary isn't necessarily a nonfiction form. It does carry the authority, some authority of nonfiction, but. It's so often used as you don't really know if people are telling the truth in letters, so it doesn't carry as much authority as as another, another form might. So, so what's what's some uh, nonfiction forms that that maybe you haven't mentioned here, but that would be common structures? Boy, let me think. I would really have to give that some thought. Yeah, would it be because, like a, like maybe a, um, I've seen some books. I can't think of any names, but like sort of. Um, a, 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 an unknown doctor providing kind of a medical updates on a patient and you see the story through that it might be a nonfiction form. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because it provides a context and an authority and it provides a structure that has its own distinctive transitional uh, devices. So like, so like I feel this, this overlaps with using lists as a narrative form going from the 10 commandments up to now, we obviously respond well to lists and so where's an example there? And you, you mentioned lists somewhat here. Or you're like, well, example with, with the things they carried by Tim O'Brien. Um, right. Uh, and Great Gatsby, I think, has a, you mentioned a list of guests. At, right, that's written on a train uh, schedule. Um, my book, Adjustment Day, has a ton of lists through it. Uh, just because right now lists are kind of of the moment because of listicles. Yeah, and uh, the internet is so full of these very consumable list type of uh, journalism, and they and they work. I mean, you if you just measure which articles get the most views. Yeah. Let's say I'm going to present something as here's the top ten quotes from Chuck I learned today, as opposed to here's what I learned from Chuck today, and I did it more na you know just straight narrative form. The first one, the listicle, will get ten times as many views. You know and. When it's on the page, it's less intimidating. It's not a big block of copy. Uh, the eye is just drawn right to it. I can get through that. Right, because you're teaching the reader how to read. You're saying, just go from here to here. here. By the way, if you want to yeah. skip the narrative parts, no problem, just go to the list. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Now, you, you, you also talk about, and I, I forget the exact quotes, and, I, and I'm not going to be able to find where I, um, uh, where I fold it over, but, and the way I picture it in my head is, even though this is not how you said it, it's good to sometimes ground characters. Like, they need to know what they're doing somehow. And, I, and I'm thinking in specific, I'm trying to think of the exact words you use, but, but, but once I make the reference to an author, you'll, you'll know. So Tom Jones, when, he's, when his character is a doctor in one of the stories, I think, in Cold Snap, it's like you know everything. He, it's, you get the feeling that the author knows everything about what it's like to be a doctor and even the arrogance and the car, and then he just had to do heart surgery, and you get this sense this is a really competent, maybe even arrogant person, 
but 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 you trust him because he sounds exactly like how you would expect a doctor to sound right down to the surgical tools and some technical stuff just like tim o'brien and the things they carry you know this guy knows how a gun works how war happens what happens so there's some sort of authority you can establish with description and i forget exactly what you and it's really here. about really getting inside the character so that as the character describes the world the character is describing themselves more effectively and mm. so that you're seeing the entire world through the character and in doing so you're really seeing the character uh, and that's the the greatest funnest authority because once you're inside the character you don't worry about how you describe the world because you know exactly how that character would describe the world what they would see when they walked in a room what they would identify what they would engage with and it seems like one way to do that is to know is to describe really well their job like if someone just shelves shelves at walmart there's got to be nuances to it that i don't know that, that someone who actually does it would know and by doing that you know by showing the difference between that person and that character and me i now trust with his great description of what he does what it's sort of grounding him in what he does showing how competent you're showing his body of knowledge yeah you know what does he what does that person know better than maybe anybody else in the world and it's also really flattering to the character because we're really drawn to those characters that not just know something but can articulate it and communicate it and that's really appealing i think that's why great teachers are so appealing is that they know what they're talking about and they can tell us what they're talking about yeah i don't mean to to diss masterclass but a lot of my friends who have subscriptions or or bought masterclass they say that some fantastically brilliant people who do great work are really, really lousy at breaking it down and teaching it. Um, and so, but they say that Neil Gaiman is great, that his, he can talk about what he does and he can teach you what he does really, really well. And in terms of driving, in terms of using that, that so that technique you use to establish the re reliability and the uniqueness, the somewhat reliability and the uniqueness of this character at least and the, the authority the authority too right so the authority not necessarily the reliability because he might be unreliable in emotional ways or other ways and that sort of drives the plot forward as him being competent in one way and unreliable in mm -hmm. others as is the case in some tom jones characters but how would you say overall that moves the the story forward the plot forward you know and to some extent it's their unreliability that moves it forward like in fight club here's a character who is violating the social con violating the social contract by allowing dying people to think that he is also dying and so that they show him nurturing and support and love and he does not have to reciprocate it because by the time they figure out that he's not dying they're dead hmm. so he's basically just processing through these people and getting his emotional needs met in this very covert way and is there and descriptive like you're 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 feeling what he's feeling because he's competent at doing this. And he's very clever. And we can admire that there's an authority that comes with that cleverness. But we also know that the moment he gets found out, everything is going to be destroyed. It's almost like also like a, like a Silence of the Lambs thing where this person is extremely, he's like a psychopath and he's extremely competent and detailed about killing people. And it's kind of a classic horror slash mystery slash thriller 
but you kind of have to establish, I guess, for the plot that this person who's obviously screwed up and a psychopath is, knows what he's doing, at least with killing people. But the, the, the trick is to have them do a despicable thing, but for a noble motive. Mm. And so, like in my book, Choke, where a character pretends to publicly choke to death so that people will come and give him the Heimlich maneuver and they can symbolically bring him back to life and therefore become kind of adopt him. Right, and so he becomes an expert at how to not only choke realistically so they feel like they have, this is like not a serious thing, they have to save him, but also kind of the emotional steps afterwards. He's an expert at those communications to make them want to continue to support him. Right, and so... So he's like an expert and you you trust that that authority there. Because he does this horrible thing, but he does it cleverly and he does it for a kind of noble reason that you can identify with. That it's an emotional reason. It's not just a... There, there's never really a reason for why Hannibal Lecter kills, which is kind of you know the flaw of Hannibal Lecter. He's just a psychopath. He just kills. But if you can give them an empathetic reason for what they do, what they the evil thing that they do, but at the same time, you build in the self-destruct of it because the moment people figure out, everyone figures out that everyone's been fooled into thinking they saved Victor's life, that's the moment when Victor's life is destroyed is when their scam is revealed. Um, well, you present a bigger problem. Exactly. And that's the third of the book that you don't know what's going to happen. And that's the joy of writing. And then uh, I guess a final question, which I don't know really if you address here, but I'm just curious. I mean, first off, I just want to say for the final question, this book really, there are so many little sub-chapters and techniques and things that blew my mind about writing and and reading and your story and I like how you mix your story with all the techniques. Every uh, every technique here is is worth a homework assignment of trying to write using using that technique and it's it's amazing. Like every chapter again, I'm so glad you came to the podcast and let me ask you these questions and and this book has blown me away. I'm sure I'm going to read it a billion times, but I don't know if you addressed this in the book, but so I'll ask, what do you think about cliffhangers? Particularly while you're writing a book, do you think, okay, I need a cliffhanger at the end of every chapter, at the end of every paragraph. How do I keep the reader moving forward? You talk about this a little moving the reader forward, but what about in the context of cliffhangers? You always want to introduce an unresolved thing that heightens attention. Um, and I think most effectively that's done through gesture or a physical sort of reveal. Uh, it's seldom done with a black outline, a line of dialogue. Um, the movie Cabaret, I watch Cabaret over and over just because almost every scene resolves with a gesture. There. What do you mean? Like, what's an example? Um, oh boy. Uh, divine Decadence. You could watch that movie with the sound off and you would see that gesture morph from the first moment she meets David York at the door to the very end of the movie where she puts her hand up on the train platform and we see her from behind and she does the exact same gesture. And this time it means, goodbye, I'm going to die. I choose to die. And at the beginning, it's a lighthearted, wonderful, goofy gesture. And every time she meets a new person, we see her do it again 
We see her do it again at the dinner party scene. And then at the end, she does it again before it's implied that she's she's to be destroyed. And so do you feel those gestures or those kind of mini cliffhangers should happen at the end of a chapter to keep people going into the next chapter where you live in this attention glutted economy, you have to keep pushing people. Well, no, and it's just your obligation as a writer is to, is to keep heightening tension, keep people engaged, give them something for their time. You uh, books take such an enormous amount of time. I don't care what books cost. They take a big chunk of your life. Yeah. They cost so much of your life to consume that the obligation is they should offer a fantastic continu- continual reward as you consume them. And in a, in a, in, and then we'll, we'll wrap, but in the, in the, in the macro sense, you have a lot of stuff about kind of broadening the definition of, you know, Chekhov's quote, if, if there's a gun introduced in the first scene, it's gotta be fired in the final scene. And, and you broaden that, like you, you use gun as a metaphor, something has to be put somewhere in the first scene that's going to be metaphorically fired in the last scene. But I guess you can do this in smaller ways throughout the whole book with these gestures, for instance, right, and so on. And so you have all these small ways of completing things that give the readers so that those, those intermittent uh, rewards, you know, the payoffs, something is revealed, but a greater thing is put at stake. Well, Chuck Palahniuk, consider this. The book is called Consider This. Moments in my writing life after which everything was different. Uh, That's a good subtitle. I had to think about it for a second. And uh, great. I encourage anybody who writes at all to to read this book. It's it's fantastic. And I'm so glad, by the way, that uh, right up until the list of the books to read, fiction and nonfiction, uh, I'm so glad we had so much overlap on the the fiction we like, and we didn't get to talk about Tom Jones very much, or I, Mark Richard, ah, another fantastic, or Amy Hempel. Uh, Amy Hempel. Oh, I was ah. going to mention Amy Hempel too because I feel she has a similar em- energy in her writing that you have. Just that kind of like it's not quite breathless, which I don't quite like, but uh, just energy, like this playfulness where she's not afraid. And she uses exclamation marks, which, which have completely gone out of style. Nobody uses exclamation marks in fiction. And they're, they're just, they're so bright now. They just jump off the page. And I think, I think it gives her a play, I think it adds to the playfulness. Yeah, like, yeah. Cause it adds like, why is that happening? Why is she excited? I should be excited. And, uh, uh, and again, you know, there's, there's a couple of fiction writers, but you, you do this too. You have this playfulness that you can go in any direction with, with the text. And, and I feel that's similar to Amy's with, with Tom Jones. I feel it's that, that ultimate, just sheer authority of the main character of each story. Somehow or other, he establishes, this is our boxer. This is our doctor. This is, you know, a jerk. And, and then he just could, he, he, the, he, the power of that drives through the story in all of the stories. And the Mark Richard story strays. Well, I, uh, uh, I, I really like his memoir too because he, he's got such a vulnerability to him and, and the ice at the bottom of the world and the stories. Yeah. And um, what's the house of, forget this, his memoir is in the second person, so beautiful. Mm. Uh, uh, and it's almost like in the second person because he's so vulnerable, he can't That's refer interesting to himself as an eye. Because Isherwood's memoir was in the third person, Christopher and his kind. Mm. And if 
I didn't care for it because I thought it was kind of a form of hiding. But now that I'm an older person, I should go back and reread it because it might actually be more honest in the third person. Yeah, because it removes... I don't, I don't I I haven't read that so I don't know but I I feel like with Mark Richard's second person it rem, it removes the ego a little bit it takes you a little further from the eye yeah. and and also makes you relate to something that you might not have experienced which is you know his deformities as a kid and and so on uh he's this beautiful writer and you also mentioned um I've heard you mention somewhere I don't think you mentioned it in the book but Cheryl Strades um <laughs> so she and she's a port, other Portland resident but I love Wild, but I love her nonfiction advice, Tiny Beautiful Things. Yeah, Cheryl was in our workshop for years while she was writing Wild. She wrote it in our workshop. So, mm. yeah, good for Cheryl. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful book. And then, um, I don't know. I'm, all right, one one second, one second, because we're going to go to yeah. your, the back of your book for a quick second, and then we're going to get you out of here. Uh, uh, where's the Where's the... All right, I don't. I can't get to it easily. So, uh, are you looking for the, uh, the fiction, reading list? Yeah, the fiction reading list. Wow, uh, like everything on. Oh, there was, Nora Ephron. You oh know, yeah, Nora Ephron. By the way, who lived in this building? Yeah, she wrote an essay about this building. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, yeah. Airships by Barry Hanna. Cathedral by Raymond Carver. Yeah. Classic. I'm surprised you didn't mention um, Haruki Murakami in here because he's you know he translated. Carver into Japan before he started writing his own novels. Did not, and he has kind of that, when he's not, in his short stories at least, has a little bit of a Carver feel. Um, but also, you know who you reminded me of, who's got that similar kind of energy as an Amy Hempel, uh, was Slaves of New York by Tama Janowis. I mentioned that elsewhere in the book, but I should have mentioned that because those linked short stories, yeah, it's another wonderful way of telling a longer story in very sort of dissimilar, seemingly dissimilar viewpoints. Yeah. But that's a wonderful book. And, uh, of course, The Night in Question by Tobias Wolf, The Pugils at Rest, we just spoke about. I've got to read Naomi Munn. Never read that. Uh, Moon. Naomi Moon. Moon. Uh, yeah, and then also Irvine Welsh, Welsh, who has that kind of energy, yeah. you know, that sort of electricity yeah. in everything, and that sort of drives everything forward. Like, what are these characters going to do next? But And he, right. he transcends dirty realism. He takes... He yes. adds a kind of Kafka fantasy to dirty realism. What do you, what do you think of like James uh, Fry's novels, James Frey's novels? You know, I haven't read them. You know, I haven't read his novels. I, I thought he just had the one. Yeah, because uh, no, yeah, he has he has a, a whole bunch in there. I think you would like well, the the first one, a million little pieces, which had the scandal around it. Right. You know, but it really is like a beautiful piece of fiction. Like, forget the scandal. He, he, again, the language matches the story. So at first, there's this alcoholic drug addict. The language is a little bit frenetic, and and the, I like it when structurally things change as the story, as the character changes and evolves, kind of like in Dennis Johnson's Jesus' Son. I'll give it a try. Well, thank you, Chuck Polinick. Uh, consider this. I hope you come back to New York and come on the podcast again. You're <laughs> always. You could just. You could be. You could knock on the door at three in the morning, and I will wake up and do a podcast with you. And the other thing, in 530 guests, I've never asked any guests to do is I want you to autograph this book. So. <laughs> I'll do it with a good pen. And I'm asking you to write, to write, to write this book, uh, even over Fight Club, which would be the cliche thing for you to autograph. I want you to autograph this one. Whoa, look at these notes. Yeah, just everything's folded over. I can shut down the podcast. <laughs> <laughs>
retired. All right, there you are. Thank All you. right, man. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it.